Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. We're beginning a new Sunday morning series at Chesbro, and we're going to be going through the next eight weeks, the Beatitudes. And we're beginning with this first message in the series, The Power of a Poor Spirit. Please enjoy. you have your places in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to invite you to stand one last time as we read the scripture. We're going to pray and then we'll sit back down. Matthew chapter 5, let's just read the first three verses. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for today. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we dive into the Word of God, Lord, as we unpack some things that you wanted to pass on to us, Lord. Lord, I pray that we dive into this and we open our hearts, Lord, to receive your Word and get closer to you, become a, a clo- begin a closer relationship with you, Lord. Be more the Christians that you want us to be. Thank you for all you've done for us. Be with our service this morning. In Jesus' precious name, I pray to you. Amen. You may be seated. So I lived in Chicago for uh, two and a half years, and I'm from South Mississippi. So I've lost a lot of my accent, but when I went up to Chicago, I had a real deep accent. And so it was hard for them Yankees up there to understand a lot of what I was saying. But not only the accent, but I had had some sayings and kind of like that I had heard growing up all my life that they just they just didn't get. I mean, I would say things like, man, I'm as hot as a tide goat in a pepper patch. And I would say things like, man, you, you, you're driving me up a slick wall. And I would say things like, man, you're good as man's ever pulled a root out of a new ground. And, and they would look at me like, well, who is a lot like you're looking at me now? And uh, they, they would look at me like a calf looks at a new gate. And they just would not understand. And sometimes I bet they wish they had a, a kind of a dictionary or a lexicon to kind of understand what exactly I'm trying to say. And I, I could almost see that there were people when Jesus started preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, because the Beatitudes is Jesus' introduction into the Sermon on the Mount. And I could almost imagine as Jesus is standing up there and he's making these statements, a lot of which on the surface don't make sense, a lot of which are counterproductive, a lot of which are paradoxical. And, uh, you know, I bet people are trying to, looking at Jesus, you know, wishing they had kind of a, kind of a dictionary to try to understand what he's trying to say. And, of course, Jesus goes on to explain it. But these are the Beatitudes, and this is his introduction in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to spend the next eight weeks going through this verse by verse, picking it apart. What does it mean? Because these are important for Christian. And a lot of Christians don't understand how important these aspects are. So let me unpack a couple of... Uh, couple of quick facts about the Beatitudes. The message of the Beatitudes is a positive one. It's not a list of don'ts. 
It's, it's, it, 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 it's, not, it's more of a list of, a, it's a list of do's and not a list of don'ts. A lot of people look at the Christian life as just you know, a big list, a life of rules and, and, and a life of don'ts. And that's important because uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's some negative, a lot of negative in there. There's a lot of reproof in the Sermon on the Mount, but the Beatitudes are very, very positive. Like I said, that's important because a lot of people treat Christianity like, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's like going to that state park and you read the sign and it says, uh, no hunting, no fishing, keep off the grass, no picnicking, uh, but have a great day. You know, that, that's, not what, that's not what Christianity is. Another thing I want to share with you about the Beatitudes is that they're progressive. They, they, they progress. They're, they're not just pithy sayings strewn about haphazardly at random. They mean something. They're building to something. The Beatitudes are the pit stop on a, on a, a road trip. The Beatitudes are rungs on a ladder that you climb. You can't get to three without having been through one and two. It's a progressive thing. Also, I want you to understand that the Beatitudes are a package deal. It's not like Kroger, where you can go in there and just pick one item that you want and cherry pick what you want. It's like Sam's Club. You got to go in there and you got to get the wholesale package. It's going to last you six months, okay? You, you got to get the whole thing and put it in your cart. It, it's a package deal. We do not get to pick and choose. We'll keep this, and we won't. We, I don't like that, so I won't take that, but I'll take this over here. You don't get to do that when you come to the Beatitudes. Another thing I want to share with you is that these are qualities lived out in the lives of a Christian, if you are around a group of people and those, that group of people emulates what's in these Beatitudes, then you are around true Christians. Because these are qualities lived out in the lives of true Christians. Now, let's talk about the word blessed, okay? Now, blessed means, oh, how happy. Now, literally, that's what it means. But more than that, it means God approves. Do, do we care if God approves of our lives or not? Or do we live for just the approval of other people? Do we live for the approval of just man? Or do we really care what God thinks of us? Do we really care if God approves of us or not? There are two words for blessed used in the New Testament in the Greek. The first one is eulogia. Of course, eulogia is just saying nice things about someone. Of course, it's where we get the word eulogy from. Somebody stands up at a, at a funeral and gives a eulogy and says nice words about someone. But the other word for blessed is markyrios. Markyrios is different. Markyrios is a state of being. It, it, it's a condition. It's a truth, a standing truth about someone. Now, some translations, instead of saying blessed, they say happy. And while that's not an incorrect translation, I do want to say that you can be blessed whether you're happy or not. 
You can be blessed whether you're happy or not. It does not depend on your circumstances. It does not depend on your afflictions. It does not depend on your trials. It depends on your maker. So you can be blessed and, and whether you're happy or not. We have to understand that. Now, the Greeks used the word makurios, a state of being blessed. They used it in a few different ways. The first way they use the word Mercurios is to describe the gods. The gods are in a constant state of being blessed because they live in the heavens far above the problems of the world, so they are the blessed ones. The second group of people that the Greeks used to describe, use this word Mercurios, are the dead. Because now they're, they're away from this world. They live in the world with the gods, once again, far away from the problems of this world. So the dead are blessed. The third group of people that the Greeks used to use this word to describe are the rich, the wealthy. Man, they're rich and wealthy. They've got economic status and, 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 and they've got power. And so... The way, if you, if the way the Greeks understood this word, in order to be blessed, you had to be a god, you had to be dead, or you had to be filthy rich in order to be blessed. And by the way, those are the same criteria that Mr. Osteen uses. And, uh, but the thing is, 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 is that God uh, says, no, you don't have to be a god to be blessed. You don't have to be dead to be blessed. You don't have to be filthy rich. And the Son of God in these verses is telling me how I can live a blessed life. And we read these, these verses and we go through them so quickly when we read our Bible that we don't take time to really stop and really understand what he's talking about. If the Son of God, if Jesus Christ is telling me how to live a blessed life, I want to be a fly on that wall. I want to know what he's talking about. I want to live that blessed life that he's telling me about. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to explore these things. So the first one, of course, is a poor spirit. Now this morning, I have three dynamics of a poor spirit. Three dynamics of a poor spirit. Number one, the paradox of a poor spirit. The paradox of a poor spirit. Let's just read verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a paradox in here. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the paradox is so you're not just, just waiting on it. The paradox is this. To be spiritually poor is to be spiritually rich. To be spiritually poor is to be spiritually rich. Now, that doesn't make sense to me and you, but Jesus said that it's true. There are two words for poor in the New Testament. The first word, it means just to barely just to have enough, like the, the widow with the two mites. She just barely had enough to get by, but she did have enough, but it was barely, barely, barely enough to get by. The second word for poor means absolutely, positively, completely destitute and totally impoverished. You would use that word to describe Lazarus. From the, Lazarus from the rich man, 
because he, he sat outside the gate and he was a beggar and he begged for crumbs for the rich, from the rich man's table because he was completely and totally impoverished. He was a beggar. He was begging. Now, which word do you think for poor is used in, in, in this verse, poor in spirit? It's the second one. What it means is you have no assets. You are bankrupt. You must beg. You have no strength. You are completely reliant on God's power. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, died, they searched his body. They searched in his pockets and they reached in Martin Luther's pocket and they pulled out a scrap of paper that had words written on it and they read the scrap of paper in Martin Luther's pocket and it said, we are all beggars. Because that's what we are. We are beggars. Now, of course, Jesus is not talking about physical poverty. How so many people have read this verse and give up all their possessions That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about physical poverty. What he's talking about is spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. Basically, Jesus is telling us that the first step, the first pit stop, the first rung on the ladder in the Christian life is spiritual poverty. The Bible is clear. If we're to come to God, we must be humble. If we are going to come to God, we must come down prostrate. If we are come to God to come to God, we must come to God broken. Turn to Luke 18 for me. Because I think Luke 18 is, is one of the best examples of this. Luke 18. This is one of the best examples that I can find in Scripture of this. Luke 18, we're going to begin reading in verse number 9. So Luke 18 and verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what we've got is we've got two characters in this parable, and I want to examine both of them and make some observations about both of these men. The first, let's look at the the Pharisee. This is the most self-centered prayer that I have ever heard. The most self-centered, I mean, who exactly is this guy praying to? He may be addressing God, but he's praying to himself. And that's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness turns into self-worship. This guy, in just this little statement, this tiny prayer that he prayed, he said the word I five times. 
Self-righteousness turns into self-worship. He wanted everyone to know how spiritual he was. And just like the people that Jesus was telling this story to, he thought that he was good because of his good works, that he was good because of the things he had done. He had become so rich in pride that he begun to despise other people. And, and, and let me tell you something, that if you use your religion to hate despise or look down on other people because they're less religious than you, then you are full of hateful pride. But by the grace of God, you're not where you were. By the grace of God, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you'd be out there blaspheming the name of God right along with them. But for the grace of God. Now let's look at the tax collector. First thing I see is that he's standing afar off. You see, the Pharisee stood up in the middle. The Pharisee stood where everybody could see him because he wanted the Pharisee and wanted everybody to hear him pray. The Pharisee wanted, they wanted, he wanted people to hear how articulate he was with his words and how eloquent he was in his speech. But the tax collector was different. The tax collector's prayer was not so polished. The tax collector's prayer was full of broken phrases and awkward wording and his voice was trembling and his voice, his, his, his tone was breathy because he had been weeping. He would not lift up his head because he was full of shame. He was full of guilt and he understood his condition. And he had guilt over it. Bible says he beat his breast. You know why? Because he knew he deserved punishment. He was a sinner and he knew that there was punishment for that sin. And he admitted it. He came clean. He saw the world for what it was. He understood his condition. Not like this Pharisee who, who had built an illusion around himself. The tax collector knew he needed the Savior. You see, the Pharisee thought, the Savior needs me. But the tax collector knew, I need the Savior. And look with me at verse 13. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, that word merciful, in the Greek, it's not the normal word for mercy. The word used here is the word hilas kamaha. And, and what that is, that's actually a word for the atoning sacrifice. In fact, that Greek word is only in your Bible twice. It's used once here, and the other place that it's used is in Hebrews 2, and it's translated as propitiation. Talking about, uh, referring to the, 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 the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So the fullest understanding we have of this verse reads like this. God, be merciful to me through your atoning sacrifice for sins because I am a sinner. And we see this man was justified and the Pharisee was not just uh, the text. The, this man was justified. The Pharisee was not justified. And the man that was justified came before God, poor spirited, broken, humble, empty, and he was the one who was justified before God. This is a conversion story. This man got saved. 
He received forgiveness of his sins. He was a, his sins were atoned for. This is a conversion story. Guess what? He didn't pay for it, and he didn't earn it. And in fact, he had to empty out his pockets before he could get it. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualifications is your lack of qualifications. Your ability to come to Christ is your inability to come to him because you don't have the ability. Not rich in pride, but poor in spirit. And if anybody is going to be saved, they have to start here. This is the first step. This is the first rung on the ladder. You have got to be poor in spirit. You have got to recognize your poverty. You have to understand you have absolutely nothing to offer God, and you never will, and you have to quit trying to be good enough. You have to quit trying to be good enough. To be spiritually poor is to be spiritually rich. So now we've seen the paradox of a poor spirit. Now let's look at the penalty of a prideful spirit. Penalty of a prideful spirit. So it's blessed are the poor in spirit. So let's, let's, let's flip this around. If the, if the poor in spirit are blessed, if you're blessed for being poor in spirit, then you're cursed for being rich in spirit. You're cursed for having a prideful spirit. Proverbs 16, 8, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Four times in the scripture this phrase is repeated. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I think one of the best illustrations of this is in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is writing a letter to the seven churches, and the seventh church is the worst church of them all, the church of, 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 of Laodicea. And it says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, he's talking to the church. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, these people in their church, they were blinded. Uh, uh, they are blinded by their quote-unquote blessings because they did not understand their real condition. You see, their pastor gets up Sunday after Sunday and says, in order to live an abundant life means you've got to have a full, of, full bank account. And when Jesus says he's going to give you an abundant life, that's what he means. He means he's going to give you the full bank account. He means he's going to give you the four-wheel drive. He's going to give you the shotgun. He's, he's going to give you all this stuff. That's what he means when he says abundant life. And that's what that preacher preaches instead of getting up and preaching the gospel of Christ. And I'm sorry, but, but the abundant life does not come from First Guarantee Bank comes from a well of, of, of living water flowing out of you from the Holy Spirit that's within you. See, Jesus is the water. 
And he gives us springs of eternal life. And when we drink from that, then the Holy Spirit flows out water from within us, meeting our needs and quickening our spirits. These people in this church, they're blinded by money. They're blinded by possession. They're blinded by position. They think, they, they, they boast about their garments, about how expensive their garments are and how rare their garments are, but they don't understand that they're naked. They don't understand that they're exposed to the elements and it's robbing them of life and sentencing them to death. Oh, they believe they're happy. They enjoy their riches and, 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 and they smile and they laugh and they rejoice, but they are never willing to, under, uh, to, to, to admit that their pride is, is not enough to fill them. And we live in a society that prides ourselves on pride. But your pride is not enough to fill you. And they will never admit that their happiness is fake, their happiness is phony, and their happiness is not real. They will never admit that their lifestyle makes them miserable. They'll never admit that. They're on a sinking ship, and they refuse to admit their ship is sinking. And their ship won't ex- one day won't exist anymore. But they refuse to grab the lifeline that is Jesus Christ, because that would mean they would confess that they needed saving in the first place. Now, there's a penalty for this. Verse, back up one verse, Revelation 3.16. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Me and my wife have had a deal. And the deal is, I'll take care of the throw up, and you take care of the number twos. And that's been our deal since we started to have kids. And the deal continues with the, 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 the animals. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of the deal we made. But, you know, he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, the principle is, is that you cannot be spiritually filled until you're spiritually empty. So the penalty for self-fulfillment is spiritual destitution. That's what the penalty is. Holding on to this world and what it can give you will rob you of what God has for you. And for the lost, that means separation from God for all eternity. That's what it means. You cannot be saved until you come to this place in your life. You come to God empty-handed. You, you drop your good works that you've been depending on. You drop your self-righteousness that we boast about. The first step to becoming a Christian is admitting that you're a sinner, that you have fallen short from the grace of God, and that there's none righteous, no, not one. But Christian, we don't need to forget about you, Christian. We don't need to forget about you. See, Christian, this is where you started out at. You started out poor in spirit. But we lo- somewhere we lost sight. You can't tell me I've never met a proud Christian. 
You can't, I, you can't get me to believe that. In fact, I, I see a proud Christian every morning when I wake up. She's sitting, no, I'm just kidding. I see in the mirror, I look in the mirror. It's the mirror. I look, every day I wake up, I look in the mirror. I see a proud Christian. What did Paul say? Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. See, Paul is saying this because he's got some prideful church members. He's got some prideful church members in the body of Christ and they're prideful because of their gifts and they're, they're prideful because of their talents and they're saying, I can do things you can't do, ha-ha. So how do we avoid this? Christian, how do we fight the sin of pride? How do we fight this battle? How do we stay humble and fight pride? And Paul makes it very clear how a Christian fights the sin of pride is they keep a mirror right in front of us. We keep a mirror right in front of us, always reminding us of who we really are. Always be aware of that truth, just like Paul said in Galatians 6.3. For if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. You are not better than anyone else because you're saved. You are not better than anyone else because you go to church. Remember that we were all without God, poor, destitute, miserable, naked, cursed. It is only by his grace we have anything. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. In this verse, Paul is mentioning that he has worked harder and put in more hours than the rest of the disciples. He's just simply stating a fact. But then three times he gives credit to the grace of God. See, it's only by the grace of God. And he gives God all of the credit. The word of God, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Several times he says, oh, wretched man that I am. And that's how Paul keeps himself humble. That's how Paul fights the sin of pride is he walks around with a mirror in front of his face, constantly reminding him of his true state. Because he knows there's a penalty for losing that, that, that picture. There's a penalty for pride, even in the life of a Christian. And that penalty is a fall. And that penalty is destruction. Paul understands that, that pride is an abomination. Paul knows that pride will not go unpunished before the Lord. So we've seen the paradox of a poor spirit, the penalty of a prideful spirit. Now I want you to see number three, the promise of a pardoned spirit. The promise of a pardoned spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the promise? It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? What does that mean? There's another phrase in the Bible. It's kingdom of God. Are kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven the same thing? Do they mean the same thing or are they, are they different things? 
Well, see, here's the thing. Sometimes in the context of where it's used, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven can be interchangeable depending on the context in which it's used. But for the most part, these two things are very separate things. See, the kingdom of God refers to God reigning in our lives. Luke uh, 17, 20 says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. See, see, we're living in the kingdom of God right now. The kingdom of God is God reigning in our hearts as Christians. But what about the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the literal place where God is. See, it's heaven. You see, the Bible describes earth as his footstool. The reason why earth is the footstool of God is because a footstool can't bear the full weight of a person. It's just the feet. And you see, this world cannot bear the full weight of God. It cannot. So on this world, all we get is the footprints of God. But you see, His throne is in heaven. And it's in heaven. Heaven can bear the full weight of God. And the earth is just a footstool. So the kingdom of heaven is where His full weight of His being is. Let me read for you James 2.5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, but the heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. Who did he say he was coming to preach to? The poor, the captive. That's who he came to preach to. The reason the poor will be blessed is because he's going to give them a home in heaven. He's given them a home in heaven. You come to God and you admit that you're empty-handed. You're a sinner who deserves nothing but death. But then you accept His redeeming work on the cross. You, you put your faith in the gospel. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of, of, of Christ. And then you, His sin will wash your sins away, will wash you clean, and He'll make you a new creature. You'll be reconciled with God. But that's a picture of turning your back on the world and everything this world has to offer. And He gives to us heaven and all eternity. There's one more thing about the beatitude, this particular beatitude that I want to bring to your attention. Most of the beatitudes are in the future tense. There's two of them that's in the present tense. And this is one of them. See, even though I have a heavenly future home, the fact that I do have a heavenly future home can fill me with joy today. It can change my life today. It can fill my earthly life with joy and peace today. Even today on the earth, I can live with the taste of heaven on my lips, knowing one day my belly will be satisfied with heaven. One day in 1762, there was an English 
preacher who was riding down the road, and he got caught in a storm. And he saw a, a, a rock overhang on the side of the road, and he got off his cart, and he went over underneath the rock overhang, and he's sitting underneath that rock out of the, out of the way of the storm, and, and he's just thinking about Christ, and he's reflecting on his poor condition and, and how much he relied on a Savior. It was that experience that, that inspired him to write these words. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. If you do not know where you'll spend eternity, today is the day to accept Christ. Today is the day to receive Him. You see, you can't get to heaven because you're a good person. You have to come empty. Your good works won't save you. You have to empty your pockets before you come to Jesus. And if you do that, if you come poor, He will fill you. If you come naked, He will clothe you in a robe of righteousness. And if you come to Him admitting that you are blind, He will give you eye salve for your eyes so that you can see. Christian, let me ask you something, Christian. Have you been thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think? Have you been doing that? Has pride crept into some different areas in your life? Have you been holding your gifts and talents over somebody else? Have you been boastful in your accomplishments? Have you flaunted your religion and, and, and made yourself out to be better than somebody else? Christian, remember, this is where you started. You started poor in spirit. You do not get the blessings of the Christian life, Christian, if you do not remain humble. Like the brother of the prodigal son... The prodigal son was the lost one, but the brother was the saved one. But he was outside. He didn't get to enjoy the feast of the father because his pride kept him out of the feast. Don't be like him. Enjoy the blessings of the Christian life. And today we need to take some time to humble ourselves. And today during the invitation, what I'd like for you to do is, is I'd like for you to do business with God. I'd like you to meditate this morning and humble yourself before God. And we need to express to God how poor we are and how rich He is. And just like Paul, keep that mirror in front of ourselves. I am the chief of sinners. Oh, wretched man that I am. It is so important, Christian, that we remain poor. We remain humble. We remain remain broken before God. We cannot be spiritually rich until we're spiritually poor. And that, that principle does not only apply to the lost, it, it, it applies to the saved. It applies to the Christian. You cannot think of yourself more highly than you ought to think if you want to live a blessed life. To be a Christian, you have to be poor in spirit. To be a blessed Christian, you have to remain poor in spirit.